The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the talking space podcast this is talking space podcast episode 304 for the week of sunday january 23rd 2011 i'm sawyer rosenstein and joining me tonight is mark raderman welcome mark hello sawyer and hi everybody else when we get around the around the table indeed it's a little different table today welcome as well gina hurlihy hey sawyer glad to be here Glad to have you with us, Gina. And also joining us tonight is a friend of the show who is a tech writer for the Ottawa Business Journal as well as a writer for Space Ref. She also has her own website called Parsec, which is P-A-R-S-3-C.com. She is a Canadian freelance writer. Please welcome Elizabeth Howell. How are you? I'm doing well, Sawyer. Thanks for the warm welcome. And uh, it's great to be on board the Talking Space mission for this week. No problem. Glad to have you on board the Good Ship Talking Space. So let's begin things off here with, as always, our STS-133 mission update. For the STS-133 mission, as you remember last week, we left you with the cliffhanger that astronaut Tim Copra, who was the lead spacewalker for the mission, injured himself while riding his bike. At this point, we still have no update on his current health status. However, we do know it was severe enough that Tim Copra will no longer be on the mission. Instead, STS-132 astronaut Steve Bowen will replace him. Does anybody think that uh, this is a little odd with less than a month, with about a month to two months left to go until mission time and he's just first starting to train? Does anybody foresee any problems or anything? Yeah, I guess I find it a little strange that there isn't a quote-unquote backup crew, or maybe I'm mistaken, but didn't seem like that was clear. Um, usually, I mean, missions always had, or crews always had a, a backup crew that shadowed them. So in case of such an instance, someone could just pick right up where the other person left off. But that, uh, practice hasn't actually been instituted since, uh, STS-4, from what I understand. Um, I guess it might've been because of cost cutting or some other measure, but on the other hand, um, you have to say that Bowen has a lot of uh, experience behind him. He was on uh, two missions, STS-126 and 132, and he has hours and hours of spacewalking and very demanding types of spacewalking as well. For STS-126 alone, he was participating in spacewalks, delivering a new bathroom, bedrooms, an exercise machine, water recycling. He's got a lot of experience behind him, at least. I wonder if a lot of the, um, currently have flown astronauts have sort of hung in there for just such an opportunity to be plucked out again to step in for someone. So obviously there's not a lot of seats to go around when the shuttle stopped flying. So um, I guess in, in, in a strange opportunity, it, it has indeed occurred that 
one of them got to will be able to fly again. It kind of strikes me that with the astronauts that are on a mission being in the limelight, we tend not to really see what the rest of the astronaut corps is doing in supporting a mission. And so, you know, there's there's duties to be spread around, certainly not for everybody. But um, and here's a side thought with Tim Copra. Uh, one of the effects that I've heard about and not really paid much attention on because it, in my mind, it hasn't really been quantified to some known uh, degree. But, you know, one of the things that they look at for long duration flight for astronauts is uh, bone loss. And one of the things that we heard initially and, and don't really know, as you said a minute ago, is what exactly his injury is. But if it's some sort of a fracture or a crack or something that's related to bone, wonder if that would be one of the effects of his, his long flights on board the ISS and the cumulative effect of all that. You're referring to Expedition 20, of course, right, which launched a couple of years ago, a year ago. Mm-hmm. He was there... Looks like about 60 days. Okay, that wasn't necessarily as long as many of them then. Regardless, that actually still is a good point because if what you need to do if you injure yourself is obviously heal it. And uh, if you're going to lose bone density rather than while you're trying to gain it back, then it's just it's not smart. That's something I actually never thought of. So really good thinking, Mark. Well, when uh, one of the tweet-ups I went to at uh, Washington had T.J. Creamer, who spent, uh, I think, nearly six months on his flight last year. And, uh, you know, he described in, in some detail enough to really appreciate the, uh, the degree that NASA goes to to physically rehab their astronauts when they come back from a long flight. They really spend a lot of time doing a lot of activities to, to get them as far as muscle tone, but also probably things that would improve, you know, any amount of bone loss that they may have had. And I'm sure that's watched real closely, too. So, yeah, I'm not saying that there was anything directly here, but uh, just wonder what some of the hazards overall of uh, of spaceflight are. And and thanks to the men and women who, who do it, not knowing exactly what the risks are. I do know one thing that those astronauts aren't happy about when they come back down. Not only do they lose bone loss, they lose a few inches. <laughs> You're talking about height, uh, compression of their spine? or Exactly. Is, uh, okay. Yeah. They're weightless. They gain a few inches of height. So they got to be angry about that when they come back down. They're two inches shorter. <laughs> anyway, continuing along, staying with the space shuttle news... It was said that STS-134 would be the final space shuttle mission. However, the STS-335 mission, which was to be flown by the space shuttle Atlantis in case of an emergency with either the STS-133 or 134 missions, is now STS-135. It has now officially been slated as a mission with a four-person crew. But as Liz was pointing out a little bit earlier, there is one minor detail with that, right? That's right. It's the money. The fact is they have this mission that is authorized to go, but they don't know if they actually have the money appropriated to do so. And uh, the reason that is happening right now is uh, Congress has to figure out exactly how much money it's going to be giving NASA in the next year. They're now operating under somewhat uh, a continuing resolution just to keep going as they were in fiscal 2010. And until that's decided, which should be in March, they don't really know how much money they're going to have for 2011. 
And of course, the challenge with the shuttle mission is that you need a certain amount of months to uh, to train and also to make sure that you have all of the steps that you need to take to get the shuttle going up again. So uh, that's why NASA pulled the trigger now instead of waiting for when the money was available. That's an interesting thought because it also, based on waiting for STS-135, was a reason why they delayed the announcement of where the space shuttles are actually going to be going once they retire. So it's interesting how they waited until now for that. Another reason for them doing this, too, is that they've got to have plans, you know, you know, in writing as to here's our intention and here's the workforce we need to have on hand to support this. They would really look, uh, they would really fumble it if they got into a few months out of the 135 flight and said, well, we've lost part of our workforce. That's going to delay us. And so this is going to allow them to keep their workforce that they're going to need for that last flight, seems to me. I don't think they'd flub it. I think whoever's left is completely dedicated to the, to the whole operation of NASA. You're right, and I've heard that time and time again from people that I met at, at KSC. They said that their people are really focused on this, and some are going to stay until the very end. And so that's kudos to their dedication. All right, so we'll see if and when STS-135 takes off. If it does, as of right now, I believe it's scheduled for June of 2011, and uh, hopefully they'll have the workforce and the money. Now, of course, that last mission would be going to the International Space Station, and uh, while we're up at the International Space Station, a spacewalk just occurred a few days ago on the 21st of January 2011. It was a Russian spacewalk, and while up there, what they did was they took out two experiments that were outside the station and brought them back, as well as installed a camera that would be used to help assist in future Soyuz dockings. Oh. Well, it sounded like they had everything go to plan. Um, they left the airlock around 9.30 that morning, and apparently they entered about 30 minutes ahead of schedule. They came back again about 30 minutes ahead of schedule. And, uh, you know, when you look at it, it was quite a technically, well, all of them are technically complicated, but this one in particular, they had to put up couple of packages, remove an old generator, install a new uh, high-speed data transmission system. A lot of the nuts and bolts probably of what they need to work with every day. So uh, kudos for them for getting it done. So basically these are more of the kind of spacewalks that we're going to see as the space shuttle retires and there's no specialty spacewalks that they have to do to install either modules or additional experiments and things. Exactly, which is why these types of spacewalks are so important, because right now they can train and figure out how to do these procedures, and then they could write out these uh, kind of procedures for going forward, because I'm sure there's a certain routine that you've got to figure out when you're going to be going out, when you're going to be going back in, and they have to do all the normal housekeeping on the station while these guys are outside as well. So it's more of a move towards uh, working in space rather than just visiting there. I can tell you if there's more of these, though, I'm going to have to work on my Russian. All right, so as we come to an end on the 27th Russian spacewalk, we will go to the second launch of the HTV, which is the Japanese unmanned vehicle which transfers supplies to the International Space Station. It successfully launched on the 22nd of January at 12.37 a.m. Eastern Time in 
Tanegashima, Japan. And that will launch and will soon meet up with the International Space Station. And the spacecraft was actually called Kunatori 2. And if I mispronounce that, I apologize. But So now we've got all these other countries finally getting in on the unmanned deal as well. You've got the European Space Agency with their ATV. And now you've got Japan successfully with their HTV. So it's a big step, huh? Well, what's important to realize is um, the United States is going to be losing a lot of its heavy lift capability, especially for the station when uh, the shuttle retires. So really there isn't much of a choice. Um, I know that right now there is some discussion about uh, getting a new heavy lift rocket, but that's sort of outside of the scope of what we're talking about today. But the fact being that the other countries, it's sort of a blessing that they are willing to uh, to step up and deliver cargo and supplies to the station because right now, it's after the shuttle leaves, that is, it's going to be very difficult for the United States to try and get equipment up there as fast as they want to. I think it's interesting in terms of numbers, uh, the amount of cargo that they have, the, cap- the capability of lifting – um, the HTV-2 had, according to their press release, uh, 4,000 kilograms of capacity in the pressurized section and 1,300 kilograms in the unpressurized section, a total of 5,300 kilograms, which, if my conversion is right, is 11,000, almost 11,700 pounds. That's a pretty good uplift capacity. And... Uh, and I guess they can bring a, a fair amount of uh, trash down for, for burn-up on re-entry as well. Are they taking the trash down through the atmosphere, or is it just going to be burned up, or why aren't they jettisoning the trash? Well, I guess with this they can control it more and it's less space junk, because I know that there was a vehicle that was just on board the International Space Station, which in fact... A short while ago, I believe, they actually released it and burned up in the atmosphere with uh, station garbage as well. So it's probably a more efficient way of doing it. So it'll be retrieved on Earth versus burning up? No, it's burned up. It is going to burn up. Okay. But it sounds like a more controlled re-entry than having just a bunch of random objects slowly falling into the atmosphere one after the other. Yeah, it's getting a little crowded up there. The last time that I've seen any small objects re-enter on their own like that was the toolkit that one of the astronauts dropped that re-entered after they lost it and it floated (laughs) away. Oh, right. I I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Yeah, that was tracked on the... uh, on some of the websites that did the satellite tracking, too. They tracked the tool bag. Oh, there were people that watched it re-enter. It was great. You know, I, I, I guess I need to hone some skills because when I look up in the sky, I'm, I'm lucky when I know exactly where to look for the ISS, and it's a good night for, for catching a pass. I'm lucky to find it. <laughs> not, you know, not for the whole, I mean, uh, I'm referring to catching it at the start. You know, it's like sometimes I look up and it's 20 or 30 degrees above the horizon. It's like, oh, there it is. Where'd that come from? But uh, anyway. Yeah, nine times out of ten, by the time I first see it, it's already at its peak height. (laughs) But that's why right now we're sitting in front of computers doing a podcast rather than being outside stargazing. That and it's cold out. 
It would have to be the astronomical event of the millennium to get me out there right now. <laughs> it's uh, minus 30 Celsius in uh, in Ottawa tonight, which translates to pretty darn cold in Fahrenheit. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad that I'm not out there. Yeah, it's four here in Boston, so I'm all set inside and very grateful I have a roof over my head. Well, I know you all feel sorry for me. It's going to be a few degrees below freezing here in uh, North Florida, so... I'll uh, I'll be trying to keep warm too. Yeah, you enjoy that. At least here it's actually, you know, two. It's a about two degrees. So <laughs> at least you Americans zero. like to talk about weather just as much as Canadians. <laughs> yeah, whether or not we actually like it is a whole other thing. Nice yeah. pun. <laughs> Continuing along with launches. The largest rocket to ever launch from the West Coast launched from Launch Complex 6 at Vandenberg Air Force Base. And that was the Delta IV Heavy carrying an unspecified governmental satellite. Launched successfully. And uh, it's amazing because that pad actually once held a space shuttle on it back in 1985 and was supposed to launch it in 86. But now we go from little space plane to big rocket right i guess it's somewhat symbolic about how the space program is going these days because uh there seems to be a move within most of the space agencies nasa included to move towards rockets rather than having a plane so uh kind of symbolic of the shift in direction that we've seen over the last 20 some years yeah but you have to admit this thing still packed a punch i mean you're talking more than a ton of fuel every second and producing 650,000 pounds of thrust. That is a big vehicle and a powerful one. I don't think you'd want to be anywhere near it when it goes up, that's for sure. Yeah. Question. See if anybody knows this. What's the benefit of launching from the West Coast versus launching from the East Coast in the South? Uh, polar orbit. You got it. It's easier to achieve polar orbit from Vandenberg at that altitude, well, that uh, that latitude. So, very good. What's my prize? You get to move on to the next topic. I'm ready. <laughs> Hope you enjoy it. Except this one, I'm going to hand over to somebody who actually wrote about this on her blog, possibly. And that was about the youngest person ever to discover a supernova. Could you enlighten us a little bit more, please? No problem. Um, this girl, she's 10 years old. Her name is Catherine Gray, and she's from a province in Canada called New Brunswick, which is uh, way out on the East Coast. And uh, basically what happened was her dad is a, uh, a an amateur astronomer. And there was one night where she happened to be sitting at the computer with him. Um, his name is Paul Gray. And uh, anyway, Catherine and uh, Paul both were looking at the computer, and she happened to notice first a supernova pop up as a bright star while they were looking at pictures taken from a telescope in Halifax. So anyway, um, she and her dad kind of investigated it further, and it turned out that it actually was a supernova. And uh, what's interesting is that um, her father, Paul, was also the co-discoverer of the first supernova found in Canada. Who uh, He found that along with two other people in uh, Ursa Major in 1995. But anyway, you know, kudos to Catherine. She's 10 years old, and she already has her name on scientific papers. So a bright future for her. Isn't it true that 
her father and the family in general has actually discovered a bunch of uh, supernovas in the past as well. Well, yes, exactly. Um, like I said, uh, Paul was the co-discoverer of the first supernova found in Canada, and uh, he also is very active in the uh, the amateur ast- astronomer community looking for other things in the sky. So uh, I guess you could say that, uh, like I said in my blog, she has star stuff in her blood. <laughs> so it really wasn't luck. There was obviously some skill involved. I mean, I didn't get – the story I read was a much more glossed-over version really focusing on her age and not so much that her father is an experienced amateur astronomer. So they absolutely know what they were looking for and were looking, actively looking for something when this occurred. Exactly. I mean, you can imagine that from the time that she grew up, I mean, um, I have a father in the aviation industry, so I can sort of appreciate she's watching over his shoulder while he does all this work. So I'm sure that in some senses it almost came naturally because she knew what he did. And then um, I don't want to say that she copied him because obviously she found it on her own, but she knew the steps that she needed to take. And then when it came time to look at the uh, the star fields in front of her on the computer with her dad, she noticed it. She just had quicker eyes than him. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. I mean, a 10-year-old can just look at a computer screen and go, there's a supernova. Well, I guess it's pretty plain to see. I mean, one in one, the way that supernovas work for our listeners who may not realize is that um, you flash two star fields beside each other, or f- kind of one after the other, and you see if there are any sort of differences in the uh, in the lights or the star points that you might see from uh, from picture to picture. So anyway, I guess it was just a matter of her seeing something flash in a piece of blackness that wasn't that was in there in the previous picture. So uh, it's kind of a clear thing, but the thing is, because there are so many points in the uh, in the star field, you almost have to memorize what the place looks like from picture to picture. So quite the feat of memorization, I would have to say. Um, she might have had some computer software to aid her, but still, it would take a, a keen eye and really, really good powers of observation to find it. Wow. <laughs> so the moral of the story is don't rule yourself out of being able to do anything. It's a matter of, uh, of being, being willing to, to do it, a little bit of luck, a little bit of uh, tech savvy, and uh, the main thing is that willingness to give it a shot. Exactly, and it's her enthusiasm that got her this far. So, like I said, it's really impressive that she was able to pull herself together like this at a young age, and I'm sure that in future years she'll be able to draw on this experience for just about any other thing that she's trying to achieve. Cool, and I think we've got one last story, and... Uh... Mark, I know you and Jean have discussed this a lot, and uh, you want to maybe tell everybody a little bit what happened and how maybe a ham radio community might have been able to help out in terms of space exploration? Sure, I'll take on part of this. Uh, our, our little friend, the NanoSale D, as he's known on Twitter, that launched in November, I believe, I don't have the full information in front of me, uh, was considered lost. And uh, on the Twitter feed for NanoSailD actually said, uh, you know, non, no contact, thanks everybody for following me, words to that effect. And, uh, and now here on the 21st of January, NanoSailD says, now I can say it, sailing, sailing over the big blue sky. Hope one sees me before I fry. <laughs> and some of the some of the <laughs> tweets have uh, have been a little little funny. Um, earlier on, I mentioned this on one of our other shows where he said, I forgot my iPod. Can you look for it? I may have left it in my locker, uh, you know, back at the launch pad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, funny things like that. But NanoSailD was one of the fast sats, just to, just to repeat briefly. Uh, it's the size of a loaf of bread. 
and it has a uh, a solar sail that was effect was actually deployed they were concerned about but it deployed and it's about a hundred square feet of uh, sail material and it's to prove you know further into the concept of solar propulsion and we also saw that on a Japanese satellite but here's the first successful US uh, you know you know microsat that's done this and uh, and again they asked for help from the amateur radio community you know anybody out there pick up my beacon uh, let us know and one of the things that I'll I'll just add in here they're talking about visual tracking too and uh, on Twitter they said if you see me let everybody know a picture is worth gold send it to uh, Marshall Space Flight Center blah 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 and then unfortunately one of the other tweets that I see is it has to be less than 10 meg in size and I'm thinking oh please government email they've got size <laughs> restrictions on attachments and uh, but anyway I'm sure that uh, and they're talking of, on on Twitter they were joking around about uh, a possible contest send us your picture we may have a contest and a prize things like that <laughs> Sawyer as a ham uh, radio operator can you explain a little bit about how that would work when you're trying to track a, an object such as this in space sure basically what it is like you could do this as long as you have the basic form of a license which is a technician's class license for ham radio as long as you have that you can get in contact you can listen to any satellite that goes by, including the International Space Station, all you have to do is know what the frequency is. So basically, you could punch in the frequency into your ham radio, which they provided on their website for any astronomer that wanted to look at it or ham radio operator. All you have to do is plug it in, point your antenna up at the sky, and just listen. If you heard a sound, then you could record where it was at what time, and that way... It'll help scientists figure out exactly where it is and if it deployed. Because if it deployed, it would give off a certain signal. So basically, they just wanted people to listen up, try and hear the signal. And apparently they did. Yeah, they estimate that uh, NanoSail-D is going to be in orbit between 70 and 120 days, depending on atmospheric conditions. So there will be some opportunities to catch it. And I believe I also saw that uh, on their Twitter feed that they compared the NanoSail-D, uh, your ability to spot it, as being similar and possibly a little better than an, than an Iridium satellite. And I have caught one of those one time. And all of that information you can catch on the Heavens Above website. There are tracking NanoSail-D along with the ISS and Iridium and many, many other objects in space that are visible. And again, that is... That is heavens-above.com. But yeah, those iridium satellites, they're, they're hard to catch. But if, if you do, you can see them. So that's actually kind of bright. <laughs> well, we figured we'd throw that story in since we've been tracking it since the beginning and since its launch. So all the best to the crew. And what's that Twitter account if people want to follow it? It's nano, N-A-N-O, S-A-I-L, D as in Delta. Nano sale D. As soon as this recording's over, I'm following that. <laughs> yeah, it looks like there'll be some activity on it. We I've kind of considered it to be closed down, but uh, uh, let's see. There have been several images of tracks sent in, but these need to be confirmed to be either Nano sale D or FastSat, which was the 
the uh, the mothership that deployed Nano Saldi. So with that, I believe that this will bring this episode to a close. So with that, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us. Thank you, Mark Ratterman. My pleasure. This was a fun one. It really was. Thank you as well, Gina Herlihy. Uh, no problem. This zipped right along. It really did. And thank you as well, Elizabeth Howell. Thank you very much. I appreciated uh, you guys bringing me on board this time. Anytime. Before we go, is there anything specific that you want to plug of yours that people can go visit? Of my own, you mean, or are you talking to everybody? Of your own. Um, if people want to find out a little bit more about me, they can head over to my blog at www. And it's said parsec, but it's spelled P-A-R-S-3-C.com. And um, I'm also at Elizabeth Howell, H-O-W-E-L-L, dot C-A for my other freelance work. All right, great. Thank you very much again for joining us tonight. Thank you. And just so everybody knows, Gene McCulka will be back with us next week. However, unfortunately, a member of his family passed away, and he is currently tending to his family's needs, and we wish them all the best in this time. So we'd like to thank you for joining us, and as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. (laughs) 